It's a sign you're supposed to listen now. (laughs) Well, after a few week hiatus, uh, primarily due to my wife and I taking what people call a honey, or not a honeymoon, but a baby moon, final hurrah before uh, the child is born. Um, We're back in 1 John this weekend, and uh, just to remind us that this is a letter that the Apostle John wrote to his church, and they had just suffered from a split, and the split had come because uh, some uh, fellows in the church had arisen and were saying, hey, follow me, and, or not follow me, but listen to what I have to say. And they had uh, persuasively convinced people in the church, not all of them, but some of them, to their way of thinking. And this left those that remained in the church confused and hurting. And John writes a very pastoral letter to them uh, because they're trying to sort through what does this mean? These people were, they fellowshiped with, with us and they were in the church and now they have left and they're saying things that don't agree with John with what you're saying. And are, are they Christians or not? Are we Christians or not? And what's the truth? And you can see how in a church that's gone through something devastating like this, there could be a lot of feelings like that. And so John writes this letter uh, to reassure them regarding what is the gospel and what does it mean to believe in that gospel and how do you know who has and who hasn't? And as we have seen, John points to Uh, certain reliable indicators of whether or not we are regenerate, whether or not we have uh, truly tasted of the grace of God in the gospel. And what we've seen so far is that that one of those indicators, he points out, is uh, the social test. Do I love or not? And he says, if somebody says that they know God, but they hate their brother, they're They're a liar, and the truth is not in them. And why can he say that? Because God is love, and all who are uh, born of God love that way. And so we've been challenged by that. The second test we saw was the moral test. Do I obey or not? And we've already seen that this obedience is not a question of perfection. 1 John 1, 8, nobody's perfect. Uh, but directionally, is the, is the course of my life, is the tenor of my life towards the things of God? Do I care about the will of God? Am I, am I striving as best I can to follow Jesus? And am I heading in that direction or not? Because if I say that I know God, but I don't obey, then I am showing that my profession is spurious. And so we've, we've wanted to emphasize that these are not ways that we are saved. They're not conditions of our salvation. Rather, they are fruits of them. They are byproducts of God's work within us. All glory goes to him. Now, to these two tests uh, today, John is going to add his third indicator, his third test of whether or not we are truly uh, Christians, truly saved And I'm going to uh, read the passage in a moment, but I got to tell you in the front end, it's confusing. Okay? It's confusing. I'm going to get to the end, and I think uh, many of us are going to be going, I have no idea what that was about. (laughs) And uh, I'm telling you that on the front end, just so you know. Now, you might ask, well, if it's confusing and hard to understand, why are we even dealing with it? I mean, can't we just sort of cherry pick the easy ones, uh, the easy passages, and, and go on? 
Well, the reason that we don't do that here at Bethel Church is that we believe all of God's Word is inspired, and so we typically are working our way through books of the Bible. And that means sometimes they're really easy, kind of, uh, you know, enjoyable passages where we're like, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then there are times where you have passages where you just sort of scratch your head and you think, you know what, we got to dig a little deeper here if we're going to understand it. And that's the kind of passage that we have uh, before us today. And John writes very simply, generally, it's a simple language, but at times it feels uh, confusing. And so uh, to help with that, I'd like to read the last three words of the whole section that we're studying today. This is verse 27. Notice the last three words. Abide in him. Can you say that with me? Abide in him. If you want to know what John is saying, he repeats this little statement, abide or abide in him. This is the main theme of what he's getting at. So bear that in mind because that might help you as I read it to kind of pick up like, oh, okay, okay, okay. That might help. So with that, now, now that all of you are like, well, I'm not going to get this anyway, let's, let's read, okay? Let's read it, and then we'll see if we can't understand what John was saying. So our passage today is 1 John 2, verses 20 through 27. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Was I right? Or are you looking at going, I totally get it. Well, for me, I had to, I had to read this quite a, quite a lot and study this quite a lot to uh, try to pick up on what John is getting at. And here's the main thing of what John is saying here. It is a call to faithfulness to the one true gospel. It is a call to faithfulness to the one true gospel. And why do we need to talk about that? I mean, is that important? I mean, why are we, why, why is John so interested in that? And why have we gathered here today to study this? Well, I could tell you why it's so important. And it's uh, a simple look at uh, church history tells us why this is so important. If we were just for a moment to think about uh, the story of, of Europe, let's go across the Atlantic pond and go over to Europe, a continent where at one time, the gospel through the Reformation was very powerfully evident. And there was a very powerful witness to Jesus that was evident in that continent. And during that time, 
uh, there were people that were excited about Christ and the gospel. And in the towns, they were preaching and they were uh, ministering and they were, I mean, you go there to this day, what are the biggest buildings in these towns all throughout Europe? They are the, the churches, which are filled today with tourists. Less than 5% uh, uh, evangelical Christian in the continent of Europe, most of them atheistic, at the very least agnostic or indifferent, could care less. You know, it's sort of like, hey, whatever, you know, that's no big deal to me. We look at that and we say, what happened? What happened in an area that at one time was red hot for Christ and now so very cold? Or we can look at so many churches right here in the United States who at one time, the people there were fired up about God and about his son and about ministry and about reaching people. And in those days, the churches were filled and people were bringing their Bibles and studying and they were preaching and proclaiming and fellowshipping and serving and just dynamic, vibrant churches and so many of those churches this morning how many people are in them they have edifices shells nothing inside what happened and how many homes how many homes that at one time god was the center of the home and where at one time within that home there were People, parents, kids, whatever, who cared about God and who were passionate about the gospel and who uh, tried as best they could to have God at the center of, of, of that house and that home. And yet today, most of us probably know homes like this. And now there's not a Bible to be found. You'll never hear a prayer. And uh, on, on any given Sunday morning, they're sitting on the couch not worshiping. What happened there? What happened there is what John is writing about. And he says repeatedly in this passage, abide in him, remain faithful to the gospel. Now let's focus in on this. And this word, it's repeated six times in, uh, in this chapter. It's this word abide. Okay. And it's one of these words. I think that, uh, the, the, the meaning of the word is helpful to understanding what John is getting at. It literally means this. It means to take up a permanent address or to settle in a permanent home. We might say it this way. It means to put down roots. Okay? To put down roots, to say, this is where we're living. This is my home now. This is, we're grounding ourselves here. We're calling this home. Residents, buyers of houses, as opposed to uh, the way that I lived uh, for a big portion of my life. I didn't buy my first house till I was 32. And uh, up to that point, as the uh, bachelor pastor, I pretty much lived as a vagrant, uh, where I would rent a basement, rent a room, I rent an apartment. I mean, I was here, I was there. As long as it had a microwave, 
I was good. That's all that I needed was a bed and a microwave and I was good. And so I spent those years, my, you know, my family couldn't even keep up in the address book. They'd write an address down and a little bit later I'm at a different address and they'd cross that out, write a new address down. Where's he living now? We, I'm not sure if this is right or not. I can't keep track. I lived just kind of, I was there until there was maybe somewhere else I wanted to live or something else better came along. I'll go live over there. I didn't really care. I was a renter not a buyer. I did not have a permanent home. I did not have a permanent address. So abiding means I have bought the house. This is where I live. Renting says I'm here until I move somewhere else. And what John is writing about doctrinally, doctrinally, is that we need to be buyers, not renters. In terms of, specifically, the gospel, that this is where we are. This is where I live. This is my permanent doctrinal spot. And I'm not going anywhere. So abiding versus non-abiding. Now let's talk about non-abiding first. The, what I call in this point, the doctrinal renters. Okay, the doctrinal renters. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. Wait, uh, no, 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 he's not. Did you get that? They're saying Jesus is the Christ. And now maybe I don't believe that no more. Okay. Now, where does we see this in the text? Look at verse 22. John writes, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist. He who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Now John here is drawing a line of distinction between what he calls truth and lies. Truth and lies. And what John means by truth is the kind of truth that our culture today does not like. Okay? What he means by truth is truth that is always true. He's talking about eternal truth. He's talking about transcendent truth. He's talking about the kind of truth that it doesn't matter how I feel about it kind of truth. Because that's the culture that we live in, right, when it comes to truth. So that people will say, well, this is my opinion, or this is my perspective, or this is my experience, or um, uh, respectfully, I would like to suggest this certain thought. And uh, two people can meet in our culture and say, I think that this is true. And the other guy says, well, I think this is true. And those two things can be totally opposite, but they don't care. Why? Because it's, we're respecting everybody's perspective on truth. Truth is relative to whatever I think is true. John says, I'm not talking about that kind of truth. I'm talking about the kind of truth that doesn't matter what you think about it. The kind of truth that doesn't matter what you feel about it. It is true because it is true. Always true. Specifically, as it relates to the nature and the person and the work of Christ. Truth. If there is one place, one stone, that the whole superstructure of Christianity, and I mean the whole thing, if it comes down and it's resting on one central truth, it is 
the person and the work of Christ. And that is why heresies and cults always are in some way fiddling around with who Christ was in his person or something about what Christ did, the nature of salvation. In some way, they are not abiding. They are they are moving their address off of what is the historic gospel to something new, something that they are uh, that they are believing. These are the renters. Okay, if I can use the word picture, these are people that their gospel address at one time was the actual gospel, but somewhere along the way they said, "Let's move. Let's move doctrinally down the road a little bit, or let's move to a different subdivision." Or let's move across town. And they are no longer residing doctrinally in the substance of their faith on the historic true gospel. One commentator says this, And now we see that Christ is denied whenever the things that belong to him are taken from him. And as Christ is the end of the law and the gospel and has within himself all the treasures of wisdom and understanding so also he is the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. Therefore, the apostle has good reason to make those who fight against Christ the leading liars, since the full truth is exhibited to us in him. So these false teachers that had arisen in the church, John says they denied that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we don't know specifically how they did that, right? That all we got is basically, is basically this. But in some way, they, in their teaching, they were saying, listen, we know that John says this, and this is what you've heard in the past, but we're here to tell you now that there's a slightly different way. And John, the apostle, says, what you're saying is not true. In fact, what you're saying is denying that Jesus is the Christ, in fact, verse 26 would indicate that this, they, they were still trying to sway them to their way of thinking. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So they had already left. Those people had already left. But they're still contacting people in the church. They're, they're writing them. They're texting. They're, they're emailing. They're saying, hey, have you changed your mind? You want to come and join us? Because after all, it's way better over here than it is where you're at. And they were continuing to try to draw them uh, to, their, uh, to their camp. Now, I would imagine that uh, there might be some of you that are saying to yourself, well, it's nice to see that, or it's, it's nice to know and understand that in the past these kind of things go on, but I myself would never fall for such a thing. My radar is constantly up. In fact, Pastor Steve, even as you speak, my radar is up. And if you suggest anything that isn't exactly right, you got to know I'm all over you, right? I myself would never succumb to such a heresy. Well, friends, you got to realize that these guys that got up and, and, and were teaching and were saying these things, it's not like they stood up and said, listen, everybody, we are, we are false teachers. And what we're about to say to you will take you to hell but listen to us anyway. No, it's never that way. It always sounds kind of right. 
doesn't it? Just like a counterfeit bill is mostly right. It doesn't say on the counterfeit bill, this is a counterfeit. No, they're trying to convince you that it is the actual thing. And what is not right about the counterfeit bill is just slightly not right. And when it comes to the heresies and the false teachings that have ravaged the church over the centuries, it's not bold-faced lies and people standing up and saying, I am a false teacher. It is very subtle, little fiddling with the historic gospel regarding who Christ is and what he did. So to give you an example of some of the fiddling that has happened down through the centuries, let me give you some uh, heresies from church history. Adoptionism says that God granted Jesus powers and then adopted him as son. So he's not the eternal son of God. He became the son of God. Apollinarianism, Jesus' divine will overshadowed and replaced the human. He wasn't fully human. He was kind of human and fully God. Arianism was very popular at one time, that Jesus was a lesser created being. He was not the eternal son of God. Little fiddle there, right? Docetism, Jesus was divine. He only seemed to be human. The kenosis question, that Jesus gave up divine rights when he came, or attributes when he came on earth, so that he was a little bit less than actually God. Modalism, that God is one person in three different modes, rather than being one God in three different persons. Nestorianism, that Jesus was actually two different people. Socianism, the denial of the Trinity, that Jesus is a deified man. Subordinationism, the Son is lesser than the Father in essence or attributes. Tritheism, that the Trinity is actually three different gods. Now we look at that list, and they sound scary, don't they? Like if I came up to you and I said, do you want to believe in Nestorianism? You'd be like, no. <laughs> Why? It sounds bad. Nestorianism. Right? But here's the thing to realize. The Nestorianism teachers did not get up and say, do you want to believe in Nestorianism? They got up and they said, we want to tell you the truth. Let me tell you the way that it is. And what happens is you get the right kind of person with the right academic credentials behind their name or the right standing in the church for whatever reason they're admired, they're looked up to. And they stand in a very winsome way. They make their argument about something like this. And how easy it is for well-intentioned people in the church to sit there and to think to themselves, well, he's smarter than I am. And what he says seems to make sense. I kind of, do you like, I kind of, yeah. And you get heads nodding in agreement. And all of a sudden you can have a congregation that has not abided. They have changed slightly their doctrinal address. They've moved, maybe not to a new subdivision, but they're the next street over, which doesn't seem like that far away from home base, does it? And this is what has happened to millions of Christians. 
When guys in white shirts and ties are on your front porch and they seem so nice and they say to you, have you considered this or that about the claims of Christianity? What is your background? Would you read our literature? And you know who the number one, uh, the, the most fertile ground for those guys to draw followers after them? Evangelical Christians who say, well, it sounds almost right. And they don't know the truth well enough to know the counterfeit. And they say to themselves, I, I kind of like that. And they're so nice. And they're having a little gathering. And they've promised to feed us. And so let's, why don't we go and check this out? And before long, down the doctrinal road, we've gone. And it happens, it's happened in church history by the millions. And it happens all the time. I came across a picture this week, actually, that I thought summarized it well. I'll just throw it up there. Now, I know many of you are packing heat here. If you ever see one of these come into the church, take care of business, all right? (laughs) Metaphorically speaking... Lest anybody edit this online, metaphorically speaking, I'm saying that we need to be on the lookout. And what John says is that anyone who denies the truth about Christ, and by that we mean, let's just make sure we know what we mean, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he is the eternal son of God, he didn't become the son of God, that he was incarnated in the Virgin Mary, and that he lived a life on earth where he perfectly fulfilled the law of God, never once sinning, and that he was placed upon a Roman cross. And he was, he was there, as he was there, God the Father laid upon him, treated him as if he had personally committed the sins of the world. He bore our guilt. He bore our shame. And that he died. He didn't just get sleepy. He didn't, uh, uh, you know, faint. He died because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And that he was buried. And that he rose again from the dead, a real resurrection. He truly was alive again bodily. And that he appeared to the apostles and 500 other people and he ascended to heaven. And he is right now at the right hand of God the Father. And he is coming back again. That is what we're talking about. Okay? Anybody that says something different than this eternal truth, John says, is a liar. Okay? Is a liar. Because they are not in agreement with the truth that transcends our feelings and our perspective and our opinions. So those are the renters. Doctrinal renters. They once were here, but then they moved down the road. Or they moved across town. Or now they're in a different doctrinal zip code. This is contrasted with what I'm calling the doctrinal residence. These are the people that when it comes to the gospel, they are all in. They have bought, 
They've bought the house. And they have said, this is where I am staying. And they end their life with the same gospel address that they started their Christian walk. They've remained faithful. Or as John says, they have abided in him. Now we can ask the question, well, how do we stay doctrinally? How do we abide? Because we know ourselves and on our own we don't abide, right? We are interested in every novel thing. We'll chase every little doctrinal uh, trinket here or there. The latest book comes out, the this or that. I'm going to this conference because there's a new thing. And this new thing has got to be well, the thing that's going to finally be the thing that I've been looking for. And people go flying off in these different directions. How does God keep his true children at the same address? And that's what John is encouraging these, his people with. He's saying God has provided tethers to keep you in the one true gospel. What are they? Well, look at verse 20. He talks about an anointing. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Look at verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his teaching or his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, part of what makes this passage challenging is that we see that word anointing and we're like, what does that mean? It sounds kind of esoteric. And what is helpful here is to realize that John's anointing is Paul's much more familiar term to us, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. Okay? So John's anointing is the Apostle Paul's indwelling. And both of these are describing one of the things that God does upon our salvation. And there's so many things that God does. All of these we can rejoice in. When I come to hear, when I hear the gospel, when my heart, when, when I, when I trust, when I believe in Christ as my savior, what he did on the cross for me, now God, there's all these things that God sets in motion because he promised that he would do that. He declares us righteous, which is justification. He adopts us as his own children. He forgives all of our sins. He promises eternal life, gives it to us, in fact. And one of the things that God does is that he sends to us his Holy Spirit, which is itself something we should just all fall down in amazement, right? Because what it means is, is that the Spirit of God dwells spiritually within uh, each one of us. So much so that Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Our bodies are a kind of tabernacle, a kind of temple. Now, if all of a sudden we were to do a, uh, you know, a CAT scan or uh, to, what's it, what do they call it when they, uh, they cut you open? You do it with the frogs in biology class in ninth grade. I can't think of the word. Yeah, thank you. 
If all of a sudden you were to say, I'm going to dissect you and find the Holy Spirit, you could dig around and pull everything out. And you know what you're going to find? Not the Holy Spirit, okay? So this is not a kind of, you know, where he's in my... I remember when I was a kid, I used to think, you know, when I asked Jesus in my heart, it meant that Jesus was actually living in the pumping organ within me. And uh, which is one reason I encourage our parents not to have their kids ask Jesus into their heart, help them to believe that's what it really means. And so there's, it can be confusing... But what God's trying to communicate to us essentially is this, that when you are my child, when you trust in me, I come now and I dwell with you. He spiritually dwells within us. And the, what that means is so many fantastic things. It means that God's presence is always with me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And some of you that are going through trials right now, just that point was worth coming to church for. It means that I am empowered to live the Christian life. His Spirit is within me, empowering me, providing the resources that I need to fulfill God's will. It means that I am gifted in some way for ministry, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It means that I can bear fruit, the fruits of the Spirit, in my life. It means that I have uh, an encourager within me in times of struggle and trouble the holy spirit is in there and he is spiritually encouraging me and don't we all need that so there's so many things that we could talk about that are fantastic implications of the spirit indwelling within us but what john is getting at is this the fact that the spirit is within us means that every one of us have an internal spiritual advisor a professor a mentor, a coach within us who helps us understand spiritual truth. That's why John calls him a teacher. He helps us understand spiritual truth, which on our own, we don't understand. The natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit. Paul writes to the Corinthians, they are spiritually discerned without God's help. We're like, you know, it's, uh, I'm up here talking spiritual truth from God's word. And without God's help, what it sounds like to you is Charlie Brown's teacher, right? And you leave and you think to yourself, I didn't get anything from that. I didn't understand anything that he was, what? It it was like noise to me. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. But for God's children who have the Spirit, now there is an interpreter inside who is helping us to ascertain spiritual truth in such a way that we now come to understand with the Spirit's help what is true And because of that, we can also say what is false. And what John is saying is you will abide because you have an anointing. You have the presence of the Spirit who will within you help you understand what is true and what is not. And those that leave and go after all kinds of crazy teachings are people that do not have the Spirit helping them to understand truth or they would abide. So this is a precious gift from God. The presence of God within us, helping us to understand what is true. Now, the second thing that we have, and these go together, is the Word of God. And John refers to this now in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Focus on the first part. Let what you heard from the beginning abide. Take a permanent address within you. What had they heard from the beginning? They had heard the preaching of the gospel, probably from Paul who started the church and or from Timothy who also pastored there and or from John himself who told them about Jesus and told them about what he did and gave the theology of what it all meant. John himself had told them these things from the beginning. This is the word of God. It is the gospel. So that what, what these people, they didn't need some new thing. And that's what the teachers were saying. Hey, John's told you this, but let me give you the new thing. And they're like, oh, the new thing. Let's go check it out. He says, you don't need the new thing. You need to stay with the old thing. Abide in the truth. And don't change your address and go somewhere else. And friends, what this means is, is that Christianity is creedal. It is creedal. It is confessional. We are, this faith is not something that is merely an experience where I have things that I think and you have things that you think and we all just kind of get together and share what we think. There is an objective propositional standard and truth. It is the word of God. He has spoken truth. He wrote it down in words. He sent his son who was not a ghost. He was a man. He was real. He was incarnate. And there is with Christianity a foundation that is truth. And we, we should celebrate that. We should celebrate the fact that when we get together, there is something that is grounded in history. There was a historical Jesus of Nazareth, that he really did walk this earth, that he did the miracles that he did. He taught the things that he, that he taught, that when he went to the cross, the Bible says he went there willingly out of love for sinners. And when he died, he died willingly. Father, I commend to you my spirit. He gave up his ghost. He died for us. And Christianity celebrates the cross and celebrates the resurrection. And we don't just say we like these things. We think they're true, right? We believe these things to be true. And do you see what John is saying then? Is for us to abide, for us to stay It is the Spirit of God within us advocating for truth that we have heard from the beginning, helping us to understand it and shaping our hearts so we don't want to change addresses. Why would I want to move across town? I'm in the garden spot right now. There's no better place to be than to be on the address of the gospel that saves. I don't want to move anywhere. It is creedal. It means something to be a Christian. It means that you believe in something that God says you must believe in. And we live in a day where people throw this label out all the time. Oh, I'm a Christian. I wear a cross. I'm going to church on Easter. I'm a Christian. I embrace the title. Thank you very much. And it doesn't mean anything anymore, sadly, in in America it doesn't mean anything anymore. When, when polls say that 75% of the United States is Christian, you and I both know it doesn't mean anything anymore. And it, it wasn't meaning anything in John's day. Because people were saying that they were Christians and denying that Jesus was the Christ. 
Now, to help illustrate what I'm getting at here, I came across something uh, some months ago, and I saved it for this moment. I saved it for this moment. And you may remember, I think it was around two years ago, that a, uh, a famous atheist by the name of Christopher Hitchens died. And I got up and I said, hey, folks, you maybe have never heard of him or read his books, but, um, uh, and I talked about Christopher Hitchens because he uh, wrote very compellingly. He, he wrote against Christianity and against religion in general and um, uh, traveled across the country and would debate pastors and theologians. And you can watch those debates um, on YouTube. But uh, before he died, he uh, gave an interview with a Unitarian pastor by the name of Marilyn Sewell. And what's so fascinating about this little exchange is that uh, Marilyn Sewell has something to say about what she believes with Christianity, and who is the one that rebukes her for it? The atheist, Christopher Hitchens. So listen carefully. It's a little portion of that interview, and I think you'll know why I'm playing it. Go ahead and play that if you would. Well, let me ask you this. When you speak of religion in your book, God is Not Great, it seems to me that you're generally referring to fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm I'm a liberal Christian, um, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Well, only in this respect, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and that by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you are really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Well, I, I disagree with that. I consider myself a Christian. I believe in the Jesus story as story, as narrative, and Jesus as a, a, a person whose life is exemplary and that, that I want to follow. But I do not believe in all that stuff that I just um, just outlined. Oh, I, I simply have to tell you that uh, every, every major Christian thinker and theologian has said that without the resurrection and without the forgiveness of sins, what I call the vicarious redemption, um, it's meaningless. In fact, it isn't, it, if it, without that, it isn't even a nice story. Even if it's true, which, by the way, I take leave to doubt, I don't think there's any evidence at all for the narrative of the life of Jesus or the various contradictory narratives, rather, of his life. It doesn't really matter to me whether it's true, uh, literally. It matters to me whether the story has efficacy for my life. Is that not fascinating? Say what you want about the atheist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, at least he's a Christian atheist, you know? <laughs> he understands the faith that he doesn't believe in. And so this is just not, this isn't just, we're not just talking about uh, silliness here today. This is the world that we live in. And there are churches right here in our community that uh, espouse what Marilyn Sewell was saying there. It's an inspiring life that he lived. The resurrection, it's so wonderful to think that there's the possibility of fresh starts and new life. And it's all metaphor. It's all spiritualized. And what John has to say to that 
is, do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God or not? Do you believe that he was fully man or not? Do you believe that he was the eternal Son of God or not? Do you believe that he was a real historical person or not? Do you believe that he perfectly fulfilled the will of God or not? Do you believe that he actually died on a Roman cross in time and space and history or not? Do you believe that he was dead and on the third day rose again bodily from the grave or not? Do you believe what he said when he said that he is coming back or not? And if you are on the or not side of that, you can pick whatever label that you want. And John says that is not true and that is antichrist. The positive, therefore, is... That if I look at that historical faith, the the claims of the gospel as found in the word of God, and I say yes to that, it means that I am a Christian and I pass the doctrinal test because I am not denying, I am not moving my address, I am standing in the biblical narrative and the story of Jesus and him crucified and salvation in no other name but Christ. I stand there. And it means then that I am under the grace of God and the benefits of the gospel are true for me. And you see the beauty of this, don't you? You have the objective claims of Christianity found in the word of God. You have the subjective within by the spirit advocating for those truths within me, changing my heart, making me want to stay at that address. And by these two tethers, God keeps us saved. He keeps us in the faith. He helps us abide in him. Now, why is this important? Look at verse 25. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Why does all of this matter? Here's why. Because we live and we die. All of us, we live and we die. And we can live our life and we can think, oh, I've become somebody and look what I have and look who I am and people admire me. I think my life has, has, has mattered in and of itself. But in the end, we all die. And in that moment, it doesn't matter who you were and all the other things. What matters is what happens when I die? And Christianity steps in and says, not only do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God creedily, we believe that there is eternal life for all who trust in Him. And God promises that to us. If we abide. If I move down the road doctrinally, I'm not abiding. And that gospel doesn't save. But for those that abide and those that remain, there is the hope and the promise of eternal life. That's why this matters, and for many other reasons. And what a blessing that is. You know, it was just uh, two days ago that I stood right here in this spot at the funeral service of Rita Holovinsky. You might remember last weekend I said, you know what, everybody, be in prayer for Rita Holovinsky, woman in our church dealing with cancer. She died on Monday in her 50s of cancer. Her family at the service sat right here in the front her children, their spouses. And this was the text for my funeral message. And I said, 
family, I want to say something to you. And I reminded them that the previous Friday, I had, I had spent some time with them and Rita, and I had communion, her last communion, and we, um, and I asked her in front of her children, I said, Rita, and every, we all knew what was coming, and Rita knew what was coming. And I said, Rita, I want to ask you one more time, is Jesus your personal Savior? And her words were, most definitely yes. Okay? And so I said to those children, I said, children, you remember your mom before she died, affirming again that Jesus is her Savior. Do you remember that? And I said, and I'm so glad that I can say to you right now, your mom is alive. I said that to her. And, and then I quoted one of my favorite D.L. Moody quotes. D.L. Moody said, when, when you hear that D.L. Moody is dead, don't you believe it for a moment? For in that moment, I shall be more alive than I have ever been. And I said to them, I said, your mom, Rita, is more alive now than she has ever been. And that is the glorious promise for all who abide, who stick with that doctrinal truth. And don't run after this and run after that, but say, you know what? It is Christ for me and him crucified. That's where I stand. And if we as a church and you as an individual stand there and do not move, then we shall experience one day the glories of all that God has promised for those who persevere to the end. Eternal life. Life without end. Life with our Savior, to whom be all glory. Amen. Would you stand with me for prayer? Stand with me for prayer. Stand with me for prayer.